would you care to predict what you think might happen here with the jury? I would not care to predict <laughs> what might happen here with the jury. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, all eyes are on the federal courthouse in New Orleans as the jury deliberates the fate of Orleans Parish District Attorney Jason Williams. And a committee of the New Orleans City Council has approved a moratorium on energy shutdowns as prices have spiked. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel. Hey, Nick. Morning, Carolyn. Environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg's here. Hey, Josh. Hey, good morning. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, Charles. Morning. Welcome back from vacation, Charles. Oh, thank you. Nick, you're in the courthouse right now. We're awaiting the jury to uh, finish their deliberations in the trial of District Attorney Jason Williams. What's happened since we talked last week with the trial? Uh, So the presentation of evidence and the case was made against him. And we had closing arguments on Tuesday. Uh, The jury went out to deliberate on on Tuesday at about, you know, three o'clock. And since then, it's just been been waiting. So we'll see, you know, they could come back today. They could come back, you know, next week or, or however long it takes. So, And the defense didn't present any witnesses. Tell us about that. Yeah. So so the defense decided not to put on any a case. And I think it was surprising to, to some degree. But also, I think most people who were watching the trial felt like the prosecution's case had at least in some some instances faltered a bit. Uh, they put the tax preparer of. Williams and Burdett on the stand. And he was, you know, I think by all accounts, not a particularly strong witness. Um, you know, he's been caught in in all these various lies and, and the government puts him on to kind of uh, tell the, the true story of what happened. Um, and it was, it was pretty easy for the, for the defense to call into question his credibility. And after they had done that, I think they felt like that that was the crux of the prosecution's case and they'd undermined it enough where they didn't really need to put on any new evidence um, to convince the jury that, that you know, uh, Williams and Burdett weren't guilty. So I, I think to some extent it was a risk and obviously the jury hasn't come back quickly with an acquittal. So we'll, we'll see. Can you comment on the demeanor of both sides? Did, in other words, did, did Jason Williams and his team look ebullient? Were they, did they look optimistic? Was there a little less tension or vice versa on the other side? I'm asking you to read into what you saw, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say. I think, you know, Williams seemed confident as he tends to, Mm -hmm. um, Nicole Burdett after the, the, uh, jury went back to deliberate was, was crying. Um, but you know, I don't know that that indicates anything more than just kind of this release of, of, you know, this high, high stakes situation and kind of having no more control over, over what happened. Um, Hmm. so, so it's really hard to say. I mean, I think that despite having kind of seemingly faltered in some ways in presenting their evidence, the prosecution had a pretty strong closing argument where they kind of tied things together and, you know, were really able to make their case um, in a really explicit way. Would you care to predict 
what you think might happen here with the jury? I would not care to predict <laughs> what might happen here with the jury. Um, you oh, know, it's a really, on, Nick. It, it, it's, um, you know, there's 10 counts against the DA and there, and Nicole Burdett is being charged with four separate counts. And I think that, you know, they could come back guilty on one and not guilty on nine. They could come back, you know, hung on three. It, there's just so many potential, uh, possibilities with, with, um, how this thing could, could play out. I mean, kind of for, for the purposes of, of the public and how this will impact, you know, the criminal legal system in New Orleans, it doesn't really matter if he's guilty of one or if he's guilty of all 10, because, mm. um, a felony conviction is going to kind of have the same, same impact regardless of, of one count or 10 counts and how that plays out, I think is going to be interesting. I think it's very likely he'll have to step down as DA if, if one of these convictions comes, comes back um, guilty. Can I just ask about that for a second? Because I've, I've seen that reported and I know you've looked into this a bit, but you know, the, the qualifications for a DA under the state constitution or something like, you know, that you have to have been admitted to the bar for the previous five years in order to take office or something like that. Um, it doesn't really seem to directly contemplate, um, you know, what happens if a DA is disbarred or has their license suspended after having already taken office. So do you have any idea of, of, of how this might actually play out in the real world? Because obviously, even if the state constitution doesn't say it, you have to be a lawyer, you presumably have to be a lawyer um, in order to be a DA because you're practicing law. So. Right, right. So my understanding is that even regardless of, of his law license, if a public official is convicted of a felony uh, in Louisiana, they immediately need to stop. They're, they're suspended from that office, so they can't do any of the work. So he, the, so Williams wouldn't be able to go into the office. He wouldn't be able to try any cases. He wouldn't be able to, you know, do anything, and he wouldn't be uh, getting his paycheck. But, but, but actually, let me ask you, let me go for a second on that law, because doesn't that law say that it's the responsibility of the local DA to enforce that? Yes, that <laughs> is true. Although if it is the DA, then then it's the attorney general. So, so this, that sort of suspension would it is throughout the appeals process. So if Williams is convicted, he'll have an opportunity to appeal his conviction. And that process could play out, you know, I think definitely over several months and maybe, you know, over a year or two. Um, so he would, he would not be able to perform any of the duties of the office, but he would not be, the office would not be vacant. He would not be removed from office until that conviction was finalized by, you know, the, the Louisiana Supreme Court. Um, right, unless, unless he voluntarily steps down. Right, unless he voluntarily yeah. steps down. So I think the state law is pretty clear on that aspect of it is that that he wouldn't be forcibly removed from office until there is a final conviction. The law license question is a little more tricky, I think, because what happens is he will get an interim suspension of his law license. And if someone can make the argument that one of the requirements of holding the office of, of DA, even if he's not performing those duties, is to be a licensed attorney, then someone could potentially file suit um, arguing that, that he should be removed. Um, you know, I don't think that the law is super clear about how all this works. And I, I've talked to, you know, 
a few legal ethics experts, and they don't seem particularly clear on mm. um, how this how this plays out. But you know, I will we'll see. And I, on the one hand, you know, you could see Williams resigning and saying, "I'm not I'm not going to you know occupy this office for the next." you know, year or two while, while this case plays out. On the other hand, I think that he really feels like he's being unfairly targeted and, and really wants to, to hold on to this, to the office. So I suppose if there's a, if the, if the legality um, of this is all murky and, you know, might have to come down to a court decision from the Supreme court, a compromise, it, it, it might be that that uh, he could he could take a unpaid leave while his uh, while his appeal is paying playing out, right? Yeah, I mean, I think he's going to be taking this unpaid leave while his appeal is playing out, no matter what. Um, right, but he so. could he, he could yeah he could uh, you know he could appoint his his first first assistant his you know interim acting whatever right. district attorney and uh, you know wait to see what the results of any appeal are to see if the conviction is finalized. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to to see kind of how he chooses to handle it. Nick, do you get any indication of what impact this is having the trial and the distraction of the trial is having on the day to day business at in the office? You know, I have not been been reporting too much on on what's going on. I think Williams has basically said, you know, we're treating this like. Uh, like I was on vacation or, you know, like I was at a conference or anything else. Um, so I, I think that probably it hasn't been too disruptive in the same way that, you know, a conviction where, where he really wouldn't be able to have anything to do, to do with the office would. Mm. Okay. We're recording this on Thursday. If there is an announcement, we'll uh, put a little postscript here. Um, yeah, well, and uh, it, it, Nick, Nick is currently uh, uh, waiting on such an announcement. I can see in his background right there that he is now in the federal courthouse. Um, right. Just uh, just wait and see what happens, um, like everybody else. Okay. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. And a quick update on the story. On Thursday afternoon, Orleans Parish District Attorney Jason Williams was acquitted by a federal jury on all 10 counts of tax fraud and failing to file forms related to large cash payments. Nicole Burdett, Williams' former law partner in his private firm, was a co-defendant. She was also acquitted on those 10 counts. However, Burdett was charged separately with tax fraud related to her own income taxes. And on those four counts, the jury found Burdett guilty. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Michael Isaac Stein, and I cover New Orleans' cultural economy and local government here at The Lens. Our aim is to report stories that others aren't or can't. Increasingly, traditional newsrooms are facing budget cuts and have been curtailing long-term investigative reporting because it tends to be the most expensive kind of work. We're here to fill that gap. Please consider helping us do this important work by making a tax-deductible donation now at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. Joshua, 
there's a committee of the New Orleans City Council that deals with energy and utilities. They just announced a moratorium for energy to prevent any shutdowns between now and November for customers. Can you explain the moratorium, what's behind it, and what does it mean for the average uh, user of Entergy's services? Absolutely. So this is a um, moratorium that would prevent Entergy from uh, shutting off gas or electricity and for, for the residential customers uh, due to non-payment up until November 1st. And as uh, council member at large, J.P. Morrell said, this is essentially a, a public health measure. Temperatures, are, as, as, as we all know, are persistently high. Prices are, are unfortunately increasing for a lot of people's utility bills. And basically, it's, as, as we all know, it's very unsafe to, to be living somewhere and not being able to, to cool down one's home when, when temperatures are this high. So it's really for, you know, a, a lot of people, especially, you know, elderly people, uh, medically vulnerable, vulnerable people, young people, it's, it's uh, a life or death situation, essentially, in, in this kind of weather. I just wanted to interject some boring stuff for a moment. Um, <laughs> just, just to give people background on it. You know, so I, I think as, as Josh is about to discuss, Entergy is agreeing to this, but it is being done through utility resolution. Because the New Orleans City Council is the legally designated regulator of energy, can, you know, the, the council sets its rates, um, the council takes enforcement actions against it, and this, this, is, all, it, this is all within their legal rights. This is actually, uh, and an, uh, once it passes next week at the council meeting, presumably, whether or not Energy agreed to it, it would be legally binding. They would have to abide by this. I think there was some confusion in some of the reporting that I saw and heard this week describing this as a request from the city council um, because it's being done through a resolution rather than an ordinance. The, the reason for that is, is it's regulatory actions are always done through resolutions rather than ordinances. Usually when you see resolution on a council agenda, it's, you know, like a symbolic thing. But in the case of utilities regulation, a resol all regulatory actions are done through resolution and they are, in fact, legally binding. So I just wanted to make that clear. What would be the um, reasoning that Entergy would not abide by this well, I, I, I mean, they have had to do resolutions or they have had, I believe, um, in the, the first such moratorium they did like this. I, I don't believe that Energy had agreed to it in advance. This was at the beginning of the, the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and Energy had been doing a voluntary moratorium at that point for about two months when the pandemic started. Uh, it was about to end uh, the voluntary one. And so the council put uh, one of these resolutions on and, and voted for it and made it uh, and, and forced them to extend the moratorium by a few more months. The reason Entergy, you know, wouldn't necessarily want to do this is because, you know, the threat of turning off people's power is how you get people to pay their power bill. Right. Um, so uh, when they're when they're under a moratorium, they they do, you know, they do run the risk of, of losing some revenue over the short to medium term. Um, and even long term, because, you know, when we get out of this moratorium, people are not 
people are not going to be able to pay, you know, people who were unable to pay now are not going to be able to pay several months from now, um, you know, especially three or four months of bills all lumped together. Uh, and they're, you know, most of, you know, most of them are going to have to go on some sort of long-term payment plan. Right. Um, so. Right. To also clarify that it's not a forgiveness. It's not a complete wiping out of the, of the bill. It's just a, a delay. Yeah, exactly. It's, exactly. Like the, it's like the eviction moratorium. It doesn't, it doesn't mean you never have to pay that rent. It just right. means you don't have to pay it right now. Okay. So, All right. What are the factors at play in all the energy prices going up here? So the big underlying factor to hear energy um, describe it is the increasing uh, price for natural gas, uh, which, which is occurring probably for uh, a number of factors, but one of the, the drivers of that is increased demand in Europe in, in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the, the fallout from, from that event. Also, though, as, as we can get into some more detail, uh, perhaps a, a little bit later, there, there's this uh, nuclear power plant that uh, Entergy has in its fleet, Grand Gulf, which, which has uh, been out of commission um, and is out of commission uh, currently. And uh, I, I think Entergy's portfolio is something like 60% uh, natural gas. When temperatures are increasing and and there's this demand from Entergy's perspective, they're saying that you know we're 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 tied to the this market and and we have to just pass the these price increases on to our consumers essentially. Yeah, I mean that's what Energy said. You know that's and you know it's it makes sense, right? Demand demand uh, for electricity is up. Uh, the supply of natural gas, which is one of their major sources of fuel for generating electricity, is, is down. So that means prices are going to go up. Um, but, you know, as Josh alluded to, um, Entergy does have in its generation portfolio um, an asset that should theoretically sh- shield, at least in part, its ratepayers from the volatility of the natural gas market, which is the Grand Gulf nuclear station in Mississippi. But, you know, Josh, if you want to talk about it, there have been some some issues with Grand Gulf. Yes. Yeah, so um, Grand Gulf is, is scheduled uh, to go offline every year for uh, two months for refueling. It has this planned outage schedule, but uh, Grand Gulf has been um, afflicted by these unplanned outages as well. I mean, it's been a reliability problem for years. We wrote a big story, uh, Michael Isaac Stein did about three years ago, um, about the frequent outages at Grand Gulf. Um, And, you know, three years later, and after after the council has um, uh, last year joined in uh, with other other power regulators in uh, um, uh, a complaint to the FERC, the Federal Energy um, Regulatory Commission, uh, a complaint about the frequent outages of Grand Gulf, we still seem to be in the exact same position. I looked up the the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has statistics on every every nuclear plant in the country and whether it's what capacity on any given day that it's that it's regular or that it's that it's operating at. Um, And Grand Gulf is one of the three or four worst performing in the entire country. Um, Mm -hmm. Over the past year, 
Grand Gulf has only been at 100% capacity for something like if something like 57% of the past year. Mm. Um, so nearly half half of the past year, um, it has been below 100% and frequently at zero percent operating capacity. Now that does include the planned the planned outage, but it also includes many many days, weeks, and months of unplanned outages due to, you know, various faulty, you know, the, the latest one is a faulty valve or something like that. So, um, you know, I don't know that we've ever gotten a full um, and satisfactory explanation for these recurring problems at this nuclear plant, but I, the council has at least attempted to get more aggressive with energy about what is going on here. You know, this is, this is supposed to this is supposed to generate uh, electricity at a, at a more or less flat rate, compa- especially compared to natural gas. Um, you know, plus it's uh, plus it's an it's a, a non-emitting source of fuel as opposed to natural gas or other forms like coal. So you know, this is this is an ongoing issue, and it's fair to say it's contributing to the problem with the prices. And you mentioned that their portfolio is, I think, sixty percent natural gas. If the Grand Gulf plant is running optimally and even including the two months of uh, planned outages every year. What percent does that contribute to their portfolio? You know, they gave these statistics recently. I just can't remember them offhand. I know nuclear is supposed to be a significant part of their portfolio, but I can't remember the exact percent. Nuclear uh, altogether is uh, supposed to be 30 percent of their portfolio. Wow. I don't know specifically what Grand Gulf, uh, Grand Gulf's contribution to that um, percentage is specifically. Okay. And then last week we talked about the solar uh, farm that they're mm-hmm. trying yep. to bring online. So all together. Yeah, they're, exactly. yeah, they're also doing that. Okay. Meanwhile, Entergy has agreed to the moratorium. So why do we have to still go through the, the vote and put the I, I, imprimatur on I, Yeah, I would say um, it, the city council has gotten some flack in the past, um, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic, for allowing pan- energy to do, for allowing energy to sort of do voluntary moratoriums on its own that it could end at any time, even though the council has the power to impose a moratorium on it. So I, I think they're responding to that by just when it doesn't appear that it's going to be a, a major problem, I think they're just going ahead and doing the doing the regulatory action because it's within their power. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think they've, they've talked for years about becoming more serious um, about utility regulation. So I think when they do stuff like this, they're trying to show the public that they're putting their money where their mouth is. Trust but verify. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And as we, we head into the really deep dog days of summer and the hurricane season i think it's it's more important than ever yeah yeah absolutely right okay all right well thanks guys thank you thank you nick keep in touch oh i will this is behind the lens a podcast from the lens new orleans first non-profit non-partisan public interest newsroom i'm carolyn heldman Thanks to our guests this week, Nick Crestel, Joshua Rosenberg, and Lens Editor, Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news, plus opinions, at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.